What a joy it is to be able to come together with God's people and sing hallelujah, which means praise to God. Halle, praise, lu, to, Yah is Yahweh, is God. And so we uh, celebrate that we can sing hallelujah to God through life's ups and life's downs. Uh, life is not always easy, but in the midst of all, of all of it, we know that God is with us and God loves us like no one else can. Uh, as we uh, enter into the last season or the last sermon in our second round of our Ecclesiastes series, I, I just want to take a moment before we jump in just to acknowledge a couple community uh, things going on. First of all, uh, longtime member Nancy Wheeler has passed away this week, and so we want to acknowledge uh, her gift, uh, the gift that she has been to us as a community to acknowledge her passing and to celebrate that she has now graduated to go on and be with God ahead of us, and she is there to welcome us into the pearly gates when we, too, find our uh, end coming. So we remember Nancy today, and also we are in the midst now of our family ministry campaign where we are seeking to raise additional funds uh, to be able to hire uh, some staffing for our family ministries uh, because our desire is not just to minister to kids and parents and families, but to be a truly intergenerational church that has a community that ministers to people of all ages, and this is a part of that. So our hope is to raise $200,000, both in upfront contributions as well as monthly pledges uh, to be given over the next two years that would fund these positions uh, in a decreasing amount over three years, 100% the first year, 50% the next year, and 25% the third year. Uh, this week, we've uh, provided the pledge cards for you. Uh, we have physical printed cards that are available in the lobby if you'd like to pick one up. Uh, also, we have our digital online version of that that you can do uh, online through our website or through the email that went out. And this will be continuing through Sunday, May 1st. Uh, you can turn in those cards at any time, but on Sunday, April 24th, the Sunday after Easter, the last week before the campaign ends, we're going to invite everyone to bring their cards in worship on Sunday where we will ask God to bless these pledges and contributions towards his mission that he's called us to. If you've already turned one in, we will bring it for you. Uh, if not, that might be your Sunday to make a final commitment in how you want to participate and support that campaign. I've been told this morning uh, that our campaign is already at $18,000. So thank you very much. You may have seen that. Yeah, that's worthy, worthy applause. That's a great start. You may have seen the house in the lobby that we're going to fill up with orange balls because we know that orange represents uh, the heart of the family, which is red, and the light of the gospel, which is yellow. And when we marry those together, we get the color orange. And that's our heart is to be a church that really welcomes families and helps parents to become the disciplers of their own kids. So continue to be in prayer about how God may lead you to support that ministry. As we were singing today, I couldn't help but feel, as Greg was talking about, how um, we are invited in worship to come and to be overwhelmed by the love of God for us. And I, I couldn't help but feel personally how more often than not, if you're like me, sometimes I feel overwhelmed by life. And maybe you come this morning with the burdens of life and work and family and, and all the cares and the burdens that, that you, you carry with you. And, and life can sometimes just feel overwhelming, or as Ecclesiastes tells us, toilsome. But we're invited to remember again, as we look into God's word and we worship together in God's community, is that God's mercy is more. God's love for you and for me is 
overwhelmingly more than all the cares and the burdens that this world could heap on us. And so I invite you to open your heart and your mind again this morning as we turn to God's word to to maybe hear a word for you through God's spirit of his eternal and everlasting love for you and an invitation to discover the overwhelming nature of his grace and his mercy which can lift us out of our own despair and the toilsome nature of life in this world and to discover the peace and the contentment and the joy that God tells us is available to us through his son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray today. God bless this time of looking into your word. Help us to see your hand in all that we experience and to find joy in the midst of every season of life. Amen. And so as I said, we wrap up round two today. We'll be ending with the second half of chapter seven. Uh, And in the quest to find fulfillment, and satisfaction and meaning in life, to find the good life, the tov life, as the, uh, the teacher, which is what Ecclesiastes means in English, has been telling us that wisdom is a good thing. Wisdom is something that actually does bring a benefit to a person. In fact, it is something that can actually be left to the generations after us as an inheritance if we are able to find true wisdom and to pass it on to others. However, he also wants us to remember and to be clear that its benefits, the gain that it can provide, which is his big question, right, is what gain is there in life that we can find in this world? Even the gains and the benefits of wisdom are contingent and limited for us human beings who live life under the sun. Having wisdom and knowledge, while important, doesn't give us the ability to be able to manage and control our lives ourselves. It doesn't give us independence from the God who created us and the God who continues to rule over the universe that he's made. And so the teacher has gone to great lengths to help us to understand that wisdom is profitable if it allows us to see the reality more honestly and more clearly, and to be able to live within the reality that God has created. You see, the true value of wisdom, he tells us, is when we allow it to begin to dispel the illusions that we we bring to life, the lies that we believe about who we are or who we should be or the kinds of lives we should expect to experience. And in this, it helps us to point us away from the futility and the chasing after things that we can't manage or control and were never designed to be within our power, the futility that we find in chasing after the wind and moves us in the direction of where we can find true fulfillment and happiness and contentment in life. Paradoxically, however, the teacher has also identified that wisdom can bring us sorrow and grief exactly because it gives us the clear insight into the true nature of who we are and the world that we live in. And so the crucial piece of wisdom for living life in this world then is to remember that our lives, as those who have been created by God in this world that we live under the sun, were created by him and continue to be ruled by him. Therefore, he says, the beginning of wisdom is for us to center our lives on that reality, that he is God and that we are not. And so the first and most important thing he says in verse 13 of chapter 7 that we can spend time doing, that we can invest our lives in, is to consider what God has done. 
to think about, to reflect on, to remember the things that God has done that help us to understand the truth of the nature of life that we live and the invitation that God has given us to put our full trust and our faith in him for our happiness and our meaning and our satisfaction. He says, who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this, God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. See, true wisdom, the teacher says, only operates within the fixed parameters of the life that is defined by the God who gave it to us as a gift and who made the universe as it is. So the teacher seeks to balance a healthy appreciation for wisdom on the one hand with a critique of its human limitations on the other so that we don't fall victim into somehow thinking that through gaining wisdom and knowledge and understanding, even wisdom and knowledge and understanding of God is something that we can use to control our lives or to be able to manufacture the kind of life that we think we want or that we deserve. In verse 15, that's why he says, In this meaningless or this futile life of mine, I have seen both of these. The righteous perishing in their righteousness, and the wicked living long in their wickedness. So do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Wisdom, if we really look at it from God's hand to ours, tells us that even though it can help lead us into a more righteous experience of life in this world, it is only partially to be grasped by us as human beings, and that on this side of heaven, we also have to remember that even our own human righteousness is always mixed in with our human wickedness and sinfulness, and that we don't have the power to overcome the brokenness and the sin with which we live each day in every way. Wisdom, although beneficial, is never a key that can be used to live in independence of our need for God and for his salvation in our life. To unlock the secrets of, of the universe and to shape our human existence uh, after our own ideas and designs and dreams and desires. To be able to grab hold of the reins of life and choose our own destinies. Although there are many ways of being in this world that are wiser than others. And that can lead us to a greater experience of fulfillment and joy and contentment. In the end, the universe is not a predictable machine that was designed for our personal use and manipulation. God never intended it to be that way. If God makes something crooked, it's going to be beyond our power or ability to make it straight. And so the wise person accepts life as it is as God's creation and as God's gift, putting their trust and their faith in his goodness and his wisdom. Knowing that either good or bad may lay in our future and that we can't control what our time of death is going to be, at any time we might find that this is the end for us. 
The wise person knows that pursuing righteousness doesn't even guarantee that we're going to live longer or that those who pursue wickedness are necessarily going to die early, even though he's already told us that the two will tend in those directions. The pursuit of wisdom and righteousness itself can't be sought as a guarantee for success in living. The benefit of wisdom is not that it makes life predictable and controllable. In chapter 3, if we remember, the teacher clearly taught us that it is God who is in control of all the times and the seasons, and we can't even figure out from the beginning to the end what his design and his scheme for our lives is. And so those who are wise learn to accept their human limitations and to appreciate each moment, this moment, the eternal now as God's gift to you and to me. Those who fail to understand the wisdom of living in the present and who think that life is not so much a gift to be received as something to be pursued and to be capitalized on, who commit their lives to striving after and struggling against the very reality of their own human limitations rather than learning to live in harmony with it are the very ones, the teacher says, who will ultimately find no benefit and no worth in living to speak of. In her book, Present Over Perfect, which I love the title and I was gravitated to it because I think her title captures in a very simple way what I think Kohelet's teaching is for us. Shauna Nyquist describes her journey out of a life of futility and one into more fulfillment as one where God gently led her to discover the good life. Like a song in the heart, as a life of letting go of everything she used to try and manage and control her experience and in the process to discover. As Eugene Peterson puts it so eloquently in his message paraphrase of the Bible, the unforced rhythms of grace. I invite you to listen to some of her words on her journey from page 97. Here she says, God in his goodness has been doing this thing in my life for a long time, surprising me, drawing me along to places I could never have imagined. Whatever thing you think you can't do without, alcohol, shopping, the number on a scale, the car, that secret habit, the workout, the pills, the lies, the affair, the money, the success, the cutting. Whatever it is that you clutch onto with angry fists, that you grab like a lifeline, when you release that thing, when you let it go, that's when you'll hear the notes between the music. That's when you'll feel the groove, the rhythm you were made to feel that you've covered over a thousand times with noise and motion and fear and all the things. When you hear it, you'll realize it sounds a lot like your own heartbeat. The rhythm of God, the rhythm of life, pumping in your chest the most beautiful song you've ever heard. Isn't that amazing? Love her writing. See, the teacher also knows 
That wisdom and knowledge is attractive to some people because it appears on the surface to offer the possibility of greater control and manipulation of life. That some people believe even that, that our understanding and our knowledge of faith and of religion and of God's word gives us the wisdom to, and the ability to manage lives on our own. Consequently, the righteous person, it is thought, can guarantee for herself or himself greater blessings from God, including long life and financial prosperity, which is part of the whole prosperity gospel that has arisen in the modern world. Yet for the teacher, this represents a profound misunderstanding of the true nature of the world we live in. While people should indeed avoid excessive foolishness and wickedness, he says, which do not lead to the good life that God intends, he's equally adamant that that as people we should avoid excessive righteousness and wisdom when they too are used only as a means to an end for ourselves. Both of these are ultimately incompatible with what true biblical wisdom is that reminds us that the fear of God or the reverence for who God really is is the beginning of godly wisdom. You see, both kinds of wisdom represent their own path toward refusing to accept the limitations of our human existence before God who created us. And those who pursue even righteousness with the intent of finding their own gain in life, hoping to find a finger hold as they climb the ladder of success, are just as guilty of arrogance and sin as those who pursue wickedness in the same, with the same underlying motivations. How easy it is, the teacher tells us, to put a religious spin on our life and somehow think that we're better than those who are not pursuing faith and righteousness as good as we are. Both, he essentially says, are guilty of the sin of hubris, or maybe what the Bible more typically calls the sin of pride. I love one commentator's definition of hubris, where he says, hubris is the arrogant self-deification in which mortal beings so regularly indulge as they seek to fashion reality after their own design. Godly wisdom, on the other hand, allows us to see the futility in seeking to control life of be, by being over-righteous, as well as the futility to seek control in life by being over-wicked. Both of them are pathways to futility. Now, in actuality, it doesn't say, as the NIV have, has it, whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Scholars suggest that that can lead us to a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of what the teacher is trying to tell us here. He's not saying that everything is okay in moderation, which is how we often translate that passage, right? As if any behavior that's within the two extremes is equally acceptable and will lead us to the good life that God desires for us. More literally, he says, whoever fears God will go out from both or will proceed from both. That both truths, that extreme righteousness and extreme wickedness with the desire to manage and control lives ourselves are both doomed to failure. So the truly wise person will grasp both of those truths and will proceed in life in the boundaries and the restrictions of a life that God has designed and given us and invites us to live in his presence and through his wisdom. 
A genuine reverence for God is what sets the boundaries around what human existence was intended to be and how we can discover our best life in relationship with him. Although wisdom can be pursued for the wrong reasons, nonetheless, he said, it is a power for living. In verse 19, right, he says, indeed, there, uh, there is uh, people who are one person with wisdom is better than ten rulers of a city. But we must always pursue wisdom and righteousness with deep humility. Because he says we're all sinners, right? Verse 20, indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. So don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, he says. And don't live your life for what other people think of you. Don't live your life on the stage for, for men and women to find approval from others. Because they're flawed and broken people too. In verse 21, he says, Don't pay attention to every word that people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Anyone freeway driving? <laughs> so don't live your life for the praise of other people. Don't live your life for the approval of others. That's a trap, he says. It's a pit that we fall into. It's the first step that leads us away from living our lives first for God. And it opens the door for us to begin to see others as objects to be used for the benefit of our own lives rather than people to be loved. And this not only impacts our relationships with people at work and at school and here at church, but it can have a dramatic impact on our most intimate and personal relationships at home, including our marriages. In a kind of wisdom statement of her own, again, I want to share with you Shauna Nyquist's book, Present Over Perfect, where she says, it is better to be loved than admired. She goes on on page 113 to say, it seems to me that one of the great hazards is quick love, which is actually not love, but charm. We get used to smiling, hugging, bantering, practicing good eye contact. And that's easier than true, slow, awkward, painful connection with someone who sees all the worst parts of you. Your act is easy. Being with you, deeply with, is difficult. It is better to be loved than admired. It is better to be truly known and seen and taken care of by a small tribe than adored by strangers who think they know you in a meaningful way. We know that's true, but many of us functionally have gotten the math wrong in one season or another. And in many ways, we're utterly unprepared for the true intimacy required for deep, vulnerable relationships and marriage. So don't live your life for the praise of others. Approval can be a trap. And this not only impacts our relationships with people, but also with our relationships at home. Sean and Nyquist was telling us how charm and admiration is not the same as love. She says, quick charm is like sugar. It rots us. It winds us up and leaves us 
jonesing, but it doesn't feed us. Only love feeds us, and love happens over years. Repetitive motions, staying, 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 showing up again, coming clean again, being seen again. That's how love is built. And if you can wean yourself off the drug of quick charm, off the drug of being good at something, losing yourself in something, the drug of work, of money, or of information, or of marathon training, whatever it is that you do to avoid the scary intimacy that's required for a rich home life, that's when love can begin. But only then. It's all in here and never out there. When it comes to healthy living and healthy relationships, she tells us, many of us functionally have gotten the math wrong. So a question for us today, perhaps, as we look at the words of the teacher and as we use his words to examine our own lives, whose math are you using to calculate the sum total of the value of your life? What is the sum that you're hoping your life will add up to, the fair market value of your own personal existence? And too many of us, both the teacher and Sean and Iquist are telling us, have gotten the math wrong. That's what he says in verse 23. He says, all this I tested by wisdom. And I said, I'm determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. The teacher says, remember where we've been before. Remember, I I, I tried all of this. I, I tried the path of seeking to find gain through wisdom and knowledge and understanding and found it wanting. The scheme of things, he says, is far off and profound, or literally, it is deep and deep. Now, now I I love that phrase, the scheme of things, but what, what in this context is a scheme? What is the author talking about? Well, a definition of scheme could be a large scale systematic plan or arrangement for attaining a particular object or putting a particular idea into effect. Or a second one could be a systematic or organized configuration or design. Like we would use the term a color scheme, right? And so the teacher says that he was seeking to discover the scheme of things or the design of the universe, how God had put things together and what it all meant. Because if you can understand the design, then you can work the system. And so the question might be for us, again, what is the scheme or the design that you're imagining for your life? What is the the design that you have on life that continues to frustrate you or disappoint you? And how might God be wanting us to, to alter our perspective and to gain new insight into how he's designed and created this to be? You see, the teacher wants us to understand that It's impossible for each of us in our own limited wisdom to grasp the scheme of things, to grasp and understand God's plan designed for your life and for mine in such a way that we can gain control over it or manage it or manufacture it to our own good. In fact, in attempting to do so, we inevitably get the math wrong. 
And we end up falling victim to the trap of loving things and using people. Rather than following God's intended design of using people in loving things. In verse 26, he says, I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Now, before we get too caught up in focusing on, uh, you know, women who are a snare, we have to understand that uh, he's, of course, speaking from a male-dominant perspective and in a culture thousands of years ago that was not our culture. And so scholars suggest that he's not intentionally being misogynistic or prejudiced against women, even though it very much reads that way, right? Rather, he, we should understand that he's speaking in this, out of his own personal experience as a man and we could easily just, or we could just as easily talk about the man who is a, a snare to a woman, right? And, and who in our personal relationships and into the romantic intrigues into which we are drawn as men and as women, it is easy to fall victim to people who, who seek to entrap us and to manipulate and to control us. And men just as easily as women can force one another to live in a, a relationship that feels like we're bound in chains of slavery. And so the point is not to focus on gender or a problem with women versus men, but on the wisdom it takes for both men and women to live lives in reverence for God, embracing the wisdom of God's design for life and for relationship, which is what helps us to prevent getting the math wrong in our relationships with God, in our relationships with one another. And so he says, don't seek to find your fulfillment in another person. That's a trap. Instead, finding your fulfillment in God alone allows you to then learn how to truly value and love other people in your life, not as objects to be used, but as people to be loved. Although awkwardly stated and seemingly skewed against women, it's most likely not an attempt to make a negative judgment about the goodness of women versus men, but rather it's simply stating that in my futile attempt at searching for answers, the teacher says, I found very few genuinely righteous people. Rather, than, uh, what I found more often to be true is that God designed humans to be upright, he says, to be righteous and good, to be content and at peace with the life they've been given. But humans have gone in search of their own schemes. They have sought to create their own designs, and in the process, they have simply gotten the math wrong. Ian Provan, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, says, when we think we can know it all, or achieve it all, or master it all, seeking to shape life to our own ends, we unwittingly seek to displace God from his throne and to put ourselves there instead. We are the modern inheritors of the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11, seeking to build through our own wisdom and our own technology a new city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. All the while, he says, the earth is full of violence. And I believe the teacher wants us to wrestle with the fact that religion itself can represent in many of its expressions an attempt by human beings to control their own lives and their own destinies. 
in a way that still fails to reckon with the true nature of the life that we actually live. We cannot seek to use and manipulate God by means of accumulating religious knowledge and wisdom and understanding of the Bible without truly submitting ourselves to the lordship of Christ in our lives. True religion, the Bible says, has as its heart a love for God that manifests itself in a love for others, in both of which the self looks outward rather than inward and gives life away rather than finding how to produce gain for the self. And so in this way, again, the book of Ecclesiastes is very much, I'd like to suggest, a preparation and a foreshadowing for us to be able to understand the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that God has revealed about his love and his grace through his son Jesus. You see, in the New Testament, true wisdom is ultimately linked to the person of Christ and that it attacks any wisdom that is ultimately pursued apart from him. There is a human wisdom that opposes God and that God opposes. It's a wisdom that he intends to frustrate and in the end, he will overcome. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, we won't have time to read the whole thing, but but Paul says in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And so the teacher has come full circle and identifies the problem. The problem of human life in this world is that God has created you and me to be upright, and to be righteous, and to live in our relationship with him. But we have gone running after many and different schemes in our own designs. And in Jesus, God invites us all to repent of our wandering and to come back to life in God and to discover in him a wisdom for living that isn't based on our need to manage and control life, but to really receive every moment as a gift from him. And as a result, that we too become people who have wisdom and love and grace to share share with others as we allow that to be the inheritance that we pass on to our kids and to their kids and to every generation after us. The only safe kind of wisdom, the teacher says, is a wisdom that is rooted in God. And the Bible tells us is centered in the person of Jesus Christ, which thus knows its desperate need for God's mercy and grace and receives all of life as his gift to us. We have to be careful then not to practice a religion that seeks to control, but one that seeks to give and bless others in his name. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the teacher and his challenge to us to look honestly and openly at the nature of life and the world we live in. God, we recognize that we too are tempted to run after our own schemes and our own designs and to get the math wrong of what really brings value and purpose and meaning to our lives. So we need your forgiveness and your grace, and we ask that you would remind us again that you have already given us everything that we need to be happy and whole, That through your Son and his sacrifice on the cross, 
You have shed your blood in a way that allows us to receive the forgiveness of sins and to not go searching after all the things that we think we need to be able to manage our pain and to overcome our fears and to numb our existence in life, but to find true joy and happiness as we live life in you. Giving us a true gift that we have, the gift of our best selves, to give away to others. In Jesus' name, amen.